Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. Today, we're going to have uh, an interview with Brian Kimple. Brian is a PhD graduate of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in Texas. He writes on metaphysics, epistemology, phenomenology, and semiotics. And his website is called Continuum Philosophical Insights. And that's uh, cp-insight.com. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. So uh, Isaac, why don't you start us off and help us understand you know, what, what we want to talk about with Dr. Kempel today. Well, I've been, I've been excited about this because uh, he's, Dr. Kempel, you, I've been sort of monitoring you from afar just because, because I found you interesting. I've, I've listened to a few of your talks. I've read a few of your blogs. I've read some sections of your recent uh, pretty, pretty affordable introduction to philosophical principles. And I get the sense that your intent is sort of that you're trying to popularize the practical use of proper thinking and proper philosophy rather than having it being, being sort of within like the ivory tower of academia. And I, in, in some contexts like Twitter, I, I can feel your frustration uh, in, in, in that effort. And uh, so how do we increase that level of dialogue and, and have an impact on culture and, and, and it sort of improve our game there? Yeah. Um, well, I think the major thing is uh, patience, right? Um, which is certainly my, particular struggle. So uh, I think the, the virtue that I struggle the most with, and so God's been giving me plenty of uh, opportunities over the last couple of years to practice it. Um, what I, I think we really lack, though, um, is, you know, like you were saying, something out in sort of outside academia, outside the ivory tower. Um, and bringing this to people is, uh, it's, a, it's a unique challenge today in the sense that we've recently sort of, you know, shifted technological paradigms in, in Western society between the sort of age of television and the age of centralized media, the age of um, large and, you know, numbers of people belonging to sort of competing ideologies, you know, the left versus right political struggle, um, mm -hmm. where most of a sort of our public discourse has unfolded within over the, you know, the past 70 years or what have you. And we've now shifted into this, this sort of new digital paradigm, right, where um, you know, I wrote a piece uh, a few months ago on, on called, you know, Leaving the Global Village. Um, you know, how we're sort of, there's this digital diaspora from the, the global village that television had created, where now you've got not just two major competing ideologies, you've got uh, this continual fragmentation into hundreds. Uh, where every you know new thinker who comes along proposes a new way of interpreting the world. Um, so you know you end up with your your Jordan Petersons and your Dave Rubens and all these sort of you know uh, Ben Shapiro types who are presenting ways to to think about the world that are different from the ways that have come before. And so there's just a whole lot of chaos right now. You know there's a lot of uh, uh, different. Um, ideologies, different ways of, of looking at the world that are being put out there. And so what's lacking from this is this sort of consistent philosophical education, uh, an education which allows people to have the tools to interpret all these things that are being said into some sort of coherent worldview. Um, so that's, that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do with things like, you know, this, this introduction to philosophical principles and with continuing philosophical insight 
Um, you know, I, the introduction to philosophical principles, I put it as, as a paperback because um, I know some people, myself included, prefer having a physical copy. Uh, but I also put it out for free digitally in a PDF um, because my intent is not to make money with it. It's really exactly an easy thing to do to make money with self-publishing books or even publishing books with large publishers. Um, but I, I just want to get the ideas out there and I want to get people talking about these things and I want to get people uh, trying to engage in a different way of thinking uh, so that we can start to, to navigate this chaos a little bit. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I really like that you use the term diaspora because I, th I think that's a very good way to describe how a lot of people feel, not, not only philosophically in terms of thought and ideologies, but, but in religion and um, in community. Um, and you had sort of like one source of truth, like you described with like the TV era, where, where things sort of made sense based on this sort of common narrative and common cultural understanding. But with social media, it's like you've got this fracture of you know, millions of different sort of subcultures and, and sub subcultures. And, and so it's, and so when people are talking, it's almost as if no one's saying not only are their definitions for words different, but, but so none of the words mean the same thing. The definitions aren't the same, but also they're, they're starting from totally different frames and, it, and it's like everyone just talks past one another. And, uh, and so more specific in sort of our own circles, what do you think is the, relevance and the significance of what, what I think you've called the philosophical habit on what you on the life of the ideal Catholic man in this age what, what's the relevance and significance of that um, <clears throat> I think the the most relevant point uh, in terms of uh, developing a philosophical philosophical habit is not being swept along in currents right there's um, you know, I look at the, the intellectual dark web thing which is just a terrible name, I have to say. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know how they can use that in uh, any sort of self-respecting sense. But, but anyway, uh, yeah, I look at, at the, the things that are said there, and most of it's, you know, about this, this sort of call back to reason and the call away from the sort of what they call postmodern, you know, thinking. Um, and there's not really a whole lot of substance to what most of what they're actually saying, you know, I think when you, when you get down to it. Um, and I think in, when you lack uh, a philosophical habit, when you lack a habit of reflecting on what terms actually mean, both those said by the people that you're listening to and those said by yourself, you can get swept up in these things which have a kind of, I guess, fitting appeal to you. Right? So if you're someone who, say, um, relatively conservative compared to things like transgender, post-gender uh, issues. And you hear someone talking about how it just doesn't make sense, right? And it's not something that should be pushed in the, the university. And it's something which, um, you know, is, is destructive to society. That's probably just going to immediately resonate with you, right? And for good reason. Uh, but you might not really understand why. You might not really get into the question of, okay, well, what does gender really mean? And why is it really an important thing? You're just sort of taking it at, at this common sense level. Um, in other words, it's just it's what feels comfortable to you. And you're, in that case, not standing on any firmer intellectual grounds than the people who say they don't feel comfortable with traditional concepts of gender. Um, you know, you're, you're sort of just standing on, on equally shaky footing, um, even if the 
idea that you happen to have is one that is correct or true, if you can't explain why, if you can't put it in terms of some sort of causal explanation, then you don't really know why it's true. And so I think that's, that's something which um, takes away from our essential humanity. You know, we are creatures who desire to know by nature, as you know, Aristotle says at the very beginning of his metaphysics, that you know, this, is, this is what we are as human beings, is that we desire to know, um, that there's something about our nature which orients us towards wanting knowledge. And that's what I think that the philosophical habit that I, I've been stressing is all about, is how do we really develop knowledge? Not just how do we you know, satisfy our own ideological commitments, but how do we come to, to know why and whether they're, they're true? So interesting, why do you think people, and I've, I've pondered this myself, why do people seem to not be like intellectually curious? Why do they not ask why? Um, well, I mean, you can point for one thing, I think, to fallen nature. Um, but today, especially, uh, I, I think there's so many opportunities for distraction. Right? Um, we live in a, a culture of distraction. And my, my, I think my favorite poem uh, of any poem ever is T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. And the first is in Bernard Norton in the third section, you know, he has that beautiful line that, you know, we're distracted from distraction by distraction. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's true, you know, I mean, the, true much more now than it was in his own day. Uh, just, I can't imagine what T.S. Eliot would, would think of Twitter. Um, <laughs> you know, that it's, it's real easy to get overwhelmed with information. Um, different, you know, streams, whether they're through social media or more traditional news media, um, just reading things online, looking at things like Reddit. Um, there's so much information that, you know, it's much easier, as I was talking about before, to just sort of uh, take things in stride with your already believed commitments um, and to just sort of interpret them all through, through that framework. Um, and just in general, you know, the, the culture doesn't encourage reflection. It doesn't encourage taking time to think about what things mean or whether or not they're true. Mm -hmm. um, it encourages things like making more money and uh, you know, doing what pleases you, doing what makes you happy. Um, <clears throat> and a large part of that has, has really come through the, the sort of, uh, I would say, television image of things. Um, you know, we, we sort of uh, consciously or not tend to form idealized pictures of life through uh, television media. Um, and we, you know, it's not just that, that, say, we idealize the lives that we see on the screen, um, you know, the sort of romanticized pictures of things, uh, whether that's you know, from a sitcom or from a drama or what have you, but that we actually start to interpret things in, in terms of the kind of illusory, illusory presentation that television gives us. Um, you know, the, the, through television, we're always presented with this, this you know, picture right, of how things should look. And so that's how we start to interpret the world as we encounter it. It's okay, how would I like things to look for me? How would I like my life to look? Um, rather than, than 
trying to understand how things actually are around us. We try to change things around us to get that idealized image. Um, so this, this is a very deeply seated habit uh, in, in our culture, I think, to sort of try and um, you know, shape the world into our ideal pictures of things. It was interesting you mentioned the what was called the intellectual dark web, which I mean it's more it's much more apt to call it the intellectual dork web because it's not these people are vanilla sort of run of the mill sort of neoliberal types and and I'm just wondering it just it baffles me to to see this presented as some sort of like edgy you know and so it just it all seemed kind of goofy and um non I mean nonetheless they they some of them do some pretty interesting work in some areas like Quillette has, has occasionally some pretty good, some okay stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, but, but it, it, it seems like that's almost their, the sort of the neoliberal attempt to sort of save um, the liberal ideology from its, um, from its, its own atomization because it, it's, it's so scattered and fragmented, you know, with the assistance of technology and everything. Um, it's, it seems like it's scattered things so much that it's trying to sort of bring it back away from sort of the mob rule that's led to sort of, you know, what they decry as for sort of like on-campus censorship and, you know, wrong think and these sorts of things. And so it's almost, it's almost like a, a neoliberal attempt to save it, save itself. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of funny that you, you bring this up um, uh, to just sort of uh, put in a little um, uh, pitch for myself here, a little plug for myself rather. Um, I, I just submitted the draft of, of an article to, um, Chris DeGroote's website, The Agonist, um, huh. uh, actually strictly on, on this issue, on, on the sort of um, problems with this neoliberal, neo-enlightenment kind of movement that you find in places like Quillette and Arc Digital and uh, my, my favorite to hate on Aereo magazine. Um, on how, you know, the, yes, this is, this is absolutely, um, in some cases, unabashedly an attempt to preserve the sort of neoliberal uh, ideology. Um, you know, Aereo magazine has this, this manifesto against the enemies of modernity. Um, so, you know, this 15,000 word or whatever essay written by Helen Pleckrose and James Lindsay, um, <clears throat> which lays out very clearly the sort of editorial direction that Aereo has taken itself in. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. it's not as explicit, but I think that's shared in some regard or another by Quillette um, and a few other right. outlets here and there. Um, absolutely, what they're trying to do is, is sort of preserve themselves. Um, and they're doing this in, in accordance with very much an enlightenment mentality. Um, you know, Christopher Dawson has some wonderful things written on the enlightenment historian, a uh, very philosophical historian, for anyone who might not be familiar with him. Uh, he was the chair of Roman Catholic Studies at Harvard University in, I believe, mm-hmm. the 1950s. Um, I think he might have been the only chair of Roman Catholic Studies. I think they may have shut that down after he uh, departed. Um, <laughs> at any rate, uh, you know, he describes the Enlightenment as the sort of combination of the empirical methodology that was rooted in Locke and, and Hume uh, with the rationalistic faith, so to speak, of Descartes, you know, that, that faith in the supremacy of reason, uh, our reason to figure things out, and especially through the application of something like the scientific method. Um, so what's happened with these, these sorts of outlets, um, you know, the broadly I think you could just sort of call them modernist outlets, is 
you know, they have a, a sort of worship of a vague sense of reason, a vague God of reason, of human reason. And there's very little discussion on any of their sites, on any of their articles, and any of their writings that I could find as to what reason actually is or to what shape reason actually takes. Um, there's no discussion of how it proceeds through human operations or human faculties. There's simply this sort of scientific methodology, and oftentimes that involves including things in terms of, of you know, imperiometric measures, you know, empirical quantitative measures. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to hold things together against the, the sort of so-called postmodern ideologies, but I think when you actually trace it all out, when you trace out the history of these ideas, the theories of the Enlightenment, or the beliefs of the Enlightenment, have actually led to those postmodern ideologies. The postmodern ideologies are just taking to the logical conclusion the principles that you find in Enlightenment thinking. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, you're just, this attempt to bring things back or whatever to a point of sanity, you're really just trying to get back to the roots of the problem. And, and, and you're just going to continue, you know, developing in that direction if you return to the same roots. Um, so it's, it's this sort of self-defeating and often self-aggrandizing uh, task that they've set uh, themselves up for, I think. So, so I, I wanted to jump in real quick on um, one of the things you said. So you, you, you're kind of talking about how they, it seems like they want to go, to go back to something. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I just, it's, I find it funny how there's this idea that they're, um, you know, that certain groups of people are quote unquote conservative, um, you know, especially the IDW types and so an intellectual dark web. So it, all of a sudden they're conservative because, you know, they want to drive off the cliff at 50 miles an hour rather than 150 miles an hour. And so it reminds me of Robert Conquest's three laws of politics. Uh, and the first one is everyone is a conservative about what he knows best. So it seems like, you know, because these people are sort of academic philosophers or whatever, and because they have this liberal bent, they're like, okay, well, we have to, we have to preserve, you know, my point of view on this thing, but everything else can just go off the rails, you know, whatever. Well, yeah, you know, that's, that's uh, quite accurate, I think. And I think part of what, what ties into this, uh, to sort of bring it back a little bit, uh, to you know, bring some threads together here, is that there really isn't a whole lot of admiration for philosophy among these groups. Um, you know, I'll, I'll throw a little bit of a tip of the hat to Park Digital in that they do at least have a section of essays on their site, which is labeled philosophy. Although I think it would be better labeled something like miscellaneous cultural commentary, occasionally taken from a slightly philosophical point of view. Um, yeah, there's, there is some good stuff on there. There are some good authors, you know, John Barnegard, um, I think Oliver Traldi, written a few things um and the same thing with with Quillet. you know they don't have any section of philosophy and if you look for things explicitly philosophical on their site you're not going to find much um but there are some some good people who write there um, you know and six smith uh, was a good writer with some good stuff up there on occasion um and even area magazine um you know, i was looking through their their site um, the other day, and I found something that was talking about Joseph Pieper and uh, the liberal arts. Like, wow, that's surprising and good. Um, but yeah, they're 
they're really not concerned with philosophy except at the most superficial levels. Um, you know, they, they might admire something like the political philosophy of uh, sort of liberal order of things, like John Locke and um, oftentimes sickeningly to me, Rousseau. Um, <clears throat> but I don't think there's a whole lot of emphasis on investigating uh, the principles on which they've they sort of built their you know, cultural edifice. They don't want to see what the foundations really are and whether or not they really hold up. Um, they want to take it as, as self-evident you know, um, that this is a good way of, of enduring life, of going through life. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that at the moment. Yeah, I, I think the IDW types, they, they tend to appeal to something that you, you really can't defend um, with any kind of, you know, solid roots or anything. I remember a Jordan B. Peterson thing where he, uh, he, he began to appeal emotionally to, to the individual, you know, mm-hmm. and, and as, as if, you know, the individual or the collective itself was supposedly some base on which you could, you could really ground like a, a hardcore philosophical defense of a conception of society or, or, of, or of a set of ideas. And because those, those things alone, the individual and the collective are always, they're always in sort of a, they're always in a cooperative. And when you, if you set them against one another, you're, you sort of repeat the mistakes of, you know, of the progression of sort of the enlightenment philosophy. And, and that's a good transition because we started out talking about how, you know, in the general population, there's sort of a dearth of good thought, of good philosophical thinking, of intellectual curiosity. But I wonder, is that more the case in a more damning way to the, to the, in the academic realm than it is even in the lay realm? Um, is, is what more damning? The, the lack of real intellectual curiosity, the, the use of, of knowledge as sort of like a, a means, a weapon, or you know, a, something that you sort of you know, weaponize to achieve a political aim or to signal to you know, your tribe and, and whatnot, as, as opposed to a genuine intellectual curiosity and a, and a, and a desire to teach in a real sense. Yeah, um, you know, academia is, it's like anything else, it's a mixed bag, I think. Mm-hmm. There definitely are, um, and this might be more particular to my own experience having spent most of my academic time in and around Catholic academia. You know, you know, I went to a Catholic undergraduate institution, Catholic graduate school. Most of the people I know um, in academia are, are in, or at least have spent a significant amount of time around Catholic academia. Um, and so there are probably a higher percentage, I would say, of people who are genuinely intellectually curious in, in those realms. Um, in the broader you know, academic worlds, there are still a lot of people who are legitimately intellectually curious. Uh, the problem is that the structure of academia is stifling to them. You know, mm. you know I, I don't know how much experience uh, Levi has had with this, but the you know, publish to perish, or publish or perish mentality, um, the pursuit of tenure track, the pursuit of, of prestige, right, becomes this overwhelming concern, um, not even consciously, right, but little bit by little bit as you sort of struggle through your career, um, trying to get jobs, trying to get the right appointments, get to know the right people, uh, you become sort of unconsciously enslaved towards this, this pursuit of prestige. And, and what actually brought you to my attention was when I first saw you engage someone who is an anonymous account online who will remain nameless, um, who um, 
after some engagement with them, it was clear they were more interested in appearing right and sort of have getting this act, <laughs> these accolades drawn to them rather than ri- like, in, and you were like, well, you know, honestly, I, I'm going to stop this right here because it's clear you're not, you're not, uh, you're not reading the terms nor the context of Thomas or Pierce properly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I remember that. <laughs> that, um, that was uh, interesting. To, yeah. Um, no, I mean, that's, that's absolutely the case that you're going to find, uh, particularly when you find people in that sort of like these, you know, interdisciplinary things uh, who think they know something about everything um, <clears throat> when they, they don't seem to even know much about their particular specialty when it gets right down to it. Uh, yeah, there's, um, you know, not, not to get too particular, but I believe that person is a graduate student and um, a graduate student with a very high opinion of the programs that that person has been in, um, which sort of inflates that sense of prestige and that sense of ego, right? The, the, you know, oh, I've, I've gone to these schools or, you know, I've, I go to Harvard or something like that. You know, I spent a year and a half or so living in Boston um, after I, I graduated with my PhD. And boy, those, I mean, you walk around uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, you hear people in conversations, you talk to people at bars or yeah. academic conferences, and you're, you're not going to find a group of people more full of themselves. Um, but I, I'm not being uh, facetious in the least when I say that I wasn't impressed by pretty much any of them. Um, you know, their depth of knowledge is rather superficial. Um, and I think that's become part of, of our academic culture in general, right, is that it's not very discerning anymore. Um, the biggest factor in getting a PhD is not intelligence. The biggest factor is stick to itiveness. I mean, if you can endure the process of studying, um, this isn't to say this is you know, universally the case in all programs and all schools, but somewhere you can find a school that will grant you a PhD as long as you're bullheaded enough to continue through the program. Um, and so that's led to a sort of glut of underqualified, in terms of real intellectual capacity, underqualified PhDs that are out there in the world. Um, so you have a lot of um, people who wear the clothes of the intellectual but don't have the substance of it. Right. It, it seems like these types of people have a sort of scent to me. It's, it's like this, they want this sort of expert status because they believe they've sort of clawed their way to this high ground and, and you know, over their dead body kind of thing, are you going to take it from them? Whereas if you really step back and look at that, that seems like such a small way to, to act. And, and when, when I asked you the question about sort of the ideal Catholic man, it's because, because I think that there's a, there's a whole patrimony of philosophy, meaning, you know, like an inheritance that, you know, that men and women who are Catholic and who are, who are human have this great patrimony of philosophy, of history, and these things that we can learn from and become better from. And it, see, that seems, it seems so much smaller to try to use that as some, you know, some badge of, you know, status or symbol kind of thing. Yeah, um, you know, there's a, there's a great article um, written probably about 15, 20 years ago by, um, maybe I'm not quite that old, I'm not sure. Father Joseph Katursky um, has taught at Fordham University for many years. Um, it's an article titled In Defense of Authority. 
and he talks mm -hmm. about you know the the need for a legitimate sense of authority and how there's this ironic frequent you know occurrence in in the university where academics will talk about the you know fallacy of a, an appeal to authority while they're all rushing to become authorities themselves <laughs> um you know they say it's the weakest of argument and oh by the way i know this because i'm a great authority on it um and in the article he goes on to explain that you know the real merit to authority is that it's attaining a connection with the truth higher than oneself right that Authority isn't about what you possess in yourself. It's that you have the knowledge of these things outside of yourself. And so you talk about the, the patrimony of you know, the tradition in philosophy. Um, you know, that's something that you're not going to find in, in most universities. And if you look at most analytic philosophy, which is the majority of philosophy in the United States as it's on the university, uh, there's very little investigation into thinkers before, say, um, you know, the late 19th century. Uh, there's very little consideration of the history. Most of it's debate over contemporary issues. And so you get these you know, really, really terrible tri-point papers uh, that are talking about things of a very ephemeral relevance. Um, that there's not really looking for, for truths greater than oneself. There's this attempt to show one's own intelligence really it's most what's coming on in, in contemporary philosophy that's interesting I, and, I, and i find it fascinating you've started sort of a philosophical practice and it, it, it is there sort of something that led you outside of the traditional academic route is there is there um some some sort of experience or, th or something that led you to see that hey maybe these things should be popularized that this should be this should be much more of a practical or an art that rather than just something that's sort of up high right well i have sort of a, a confluence of different things um for one thing um when i finished my phd i'd, I'd been on the job market for a little while um, and just wasn't having any luck um you know i think all told over two and a half or so years on the job market i put in applications for 127 different academic positions. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, putting in a, a job application uh, for an academic position isn't quite like putting one in for, you know, uh, your non-academic job. There's, there's a lot more involved. Um, you have to write, you know, statements of intent and commitment to mission statement and, you know, put together a sample of your teaching evaluations and all these other things. Um, so it's, it's a rather involved process. Um, so I think out of that, you know, I got maybe three, four interviews, something like that. Um, and, you know, it just, I kept getting passed over and passed over. And so there's, there's certainly a you know, particular frustration with that. Um, at the same time, while I was in Boston, I was uh, teaching as an adjunct at the Woodworth Institute of Technology. And I was doing a lot of private tutoring at the time um, because, you know, uh, Students in Boston tend to come from wealthier families who have a lot of money that they're willing to spend on a private tutor. Um, actually, make better money that way, I think, than uh, uh, most teaching positions. Um, <clears throat> so I was doing that, and some of the students that, that I gained in the process, uh, you know, started to tell me that they they found my tutoring more informative than the classes that they were taking. <laughs> and I found it, you know, it was a, a better way of presenting things, a better way of going about the issues. And so I thought, you know, okay, you know, maybe I can take this and 
do something like this on a larger scale. Uh, maybe I can take something like one-on-one -on -one individual education. There's one client in particular that, that I, I still have to this day. Um, you know, he was doing a, a, a doctorate in business administration and has switched, since switched over to a PhD in business. Um, there was a philosophical component to his coursework and you know, he found what I was doing so much more helpful than the professor that you know, it just sort of blossomed into this, this thing where not only was I helping him with his, his coursework, uh, but he wanted philosophical education outside of that. And so I figured, well, there have to be more people like this um, out in the world who can you know, uh, afford to, to do it in this sort of manner. Know, um, who can you know, pay a reasonable amount uh, for, for the sort of level of expertise that I have. Um, but I also want to you know, bring it to people who can't afford that. Right? Right. So that's why I'm, I'm you know, trying to offer seminars and, and maybe some courses. Um, still sort of working on some of the details with that. But I'm, you know, I just ran a poll on Twitter this, this past day. Um, you know, what people like to have for a seminar, and then it's gotten some pretty good response. So um, I might have two this summer, um, you know, at, at a discount rate since it's the first time I'm trying this. So I'm sure there'll be some, some kinks that need to be worked out. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, I thought that, um, yeah, as, as I started this, this idea, as this idea started to grow, I realized, you know, just more and more how necessary it is. Um, I'm used to interacting with people on Twitter who for one reason or another, have not received a, a good philosophical education, um, whether it's because college is too expensive or the colleges that they've gone to haven't provided that. Um, I see that there's, there's a kind of hunger for it. Uh, people want this sort of service and it's not being offered to them, right? And instead they're turning to these, you know, sort of flash in the pan, you know, anonymous figures as intellectual leaders. And I, I think that that's, uh, not only is it not the best sort of education that they could get, it's perhaps dangerous in some cases, right? Um, then you get a kind of cult of personality um, around these figures online um, who don't really know in great depth what they're talking about, right? <laughs> they can be misleading <laughs> at times um, and they can, you know, take what, you know, say Aquinas says on some issue um, that was a contingent particular issue in his own time and misapply that as though it's still perfectly the way things should operate today. Here's where St. Thomas was a communist. <laughs> right. Here was, you know, here's where St. Thomas was a communist or here's where St. Thomas said that, you know, we should banish and subjugate all the Jews, right? You know, it's going to go one extreme or the other um, and not, pay attention to the particular historical context in which that statement was made. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's, there's dangers on, on every side of the spectrum there. Um, that, you know, anyone can go in and read Thomas Aquinas's works. You know, most of them are, are translated into English. Most all of them are available on the Dominican House of Studies Priory website. Um, it's a great resource, but just because you can read the literal words doesn't mean that you have the philosophical acumen to understand them. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to understand Thomas Aquinas. Um, and, you know, I, I don't recommend for most individuals to just go off on their own and read him. Um, I think it's much better if you can read him with people who've been educated into mystical philosophy. 
um, just because mm -hmm. there's, there's so many things that you could misinterpret um, from something that was written, you know, in Latin 700 plus years ago. Sure. So what do you think are the sort of the most dangerous errors or, or perhaps the most, um, the most hindering errors that we commit in our thought life? And how do you sort of guard against those or ameliorate them? Um, well, I think uh, arrogant certainty, for one thing, <laughs> is the, the biggest danger, right? Um, you know, that I'm right, I know what I'm talking about, and you're a stupid idiot, and, you know, you're speaking out the wrong end. Um, <clears throat> I think that's the easiest one to fall into, uh, and especially with the sort of extreme contentious nature of digital life, as it were. Um, where you know you're most you know, talking to a picture that you've never talked to in real life and never seen in real life. Um, it's the same sort of uh, factor in road rage, right? That when it's a semi-anonymous person, it's very easy to treat them uh, very, very negatively. Um, and so, uh, in, in parallel to that, that sort of arrogance, I think um, complacency, which goes hand in hand, you know, thinking that that you know enough. Um, that you've mastered some subject. Um, you know, I've, I've been, to, to give just a very brief example from my own life, I've been you know, reading Thomas Aquinas in serious academic studies since you know, before I went to college, but certainly you know, 2006 and on. And I still go back to the basic texts time to time and you know, find something new, find something I didn't understand there. I find someone else's interpretation which illuminates something that I thought I knew um, better than I, I thought I knew it. And so there's, there's just always more, right? We can't be complacent. We can't sort of say, okay, well, I know enough. You never know enough. And there's, there's always something more and something uh, better that you could pursue in your knowledge. So I, I started to read a little bit of your, your introduction, and it, it's actually quite readable. I, I like how it presents things. And, and I've read some of the I read some sort of introductory philosophical manuals that were sort of intended for the 19th century. So they're, so they're fairly rigorous and very systematized and, and, and almost very dry, but I think yours reads well. Uh, is there, is there any set of works or like sort of a starting point you'd recommend for someone who wants to, who wants to go into sort of this philosophical inheritance that, that Catholicism has? Um, you know, I, I don't know that I have something off the top of my head. Um, I mean, I think in some sense, uh, if you're really just starting out, if you've never really engaged in any sort of study at all, I think Chesterton is actually a good introduction, just in the sense of mm -hmm. the way that he sort of challenges presuppositions um, with his quasi-paradoxical view of things. Um, but beyond that, you know, it's, it's not that there's not one good thing to read, it's that there's so many. Right. Um, sure. Joseph Pieper is a great uh, introductory read, I think. You know, he's got several works, you know, Leisure, The Basis of Culture, um, In Defense of Philosophy, The Philosophical Act, uh, his treatment of the, the virtues is very good. Um, and then there are some works, say, of Jacques Maritain, which might be a little bit more approachable, um, something like Person and the Common Good. Um, uh, let's see. I'm, I'm, look, I'm turning around and looking at the bookshelf at the moment, um, trying to see if anything's jumping out to me. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's lots and lots of different ways that, that you can um, get into it, uh, and of course, there's always my own book too. <laughs> Certainly. Um, you know, and that's that's kind of um, part of what I had in mind when I wrote it. Right? Is that um, you know most of the books that we have that are out there 
um, especially recent ones, are geared towards the classroom setting. They're geared towards use in a university where you're at least somewhat surrounded by this kind of life, this sort of philosophical life, um, at least, you know, ideally. Um, but that's not the case for a lot of people, right? You know, we're sort of far flung throughout the country um, in different stages of our lives. And so it's not easy for people to find, you know, a, a, an environment of philosophical speculation or philosophical thinking. Um, so that's kind of what I had in mind in writing a book is, okay, let me write a book for those people, for the people who are on an, an intellectual island um, who, who want to get into these issues. And it's the same thing with, um, you know, ideally with, with continuing philosophical insight, with seminars and classes. It's, okay, here's something that I can do online where I can, I can provide uh, this sort of environment for people who want it, who can't get to it regularly in their own you know, physical surroundings. Sure. You mentioned uh, G.K. Chesterton. What do you think of, have you read his book, St. Thomas Aquinas? Yeah, uh, it's, it's honestly been quite a number of years, but I probably read it two, at least twice, if not a, a third time. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those biographies that's mixed with a fair amount of, of legend and a fair amount of uh, sure. his own interpretation. But I think it's, um, you know, it's faithful nonetheless to the spirit of his life. And faithful gotcha. Life spirit of his, his writing. Um, I think I might treat the issue of being a little bit simplistically, but that's, that's, a, that's a debate um, that uh, yeah, I've sort of written on for, for many years. And so I, I, felt it, I felt it was interesting for painting an interesting picture of, of St. Thomas Aquinas, but, but with G.K. Chesterton, you have to worry about, because there's a lot of flourish in the way that he can build a narrative and a story. Um, and I and I kind of wondered how much the flourish sort of reflected the reality. Yeah, um, I think the the way to look at that is that the the flourish is for us um, less than it is about him, uh, less than it is about uh, Aquinas. Um, it's something which helps bring us into reading about it and thinking about it and thinking about Aquinas' uh, life and his works. Um, but you might want to balance that out with um, maybe a, a bit more tempered of a biography. So. Uh, Again, to bring up Joseph Pieper, he has a short book, um, The Silence of St. Thomas, which I think sort of balances out a bit of what you find in Chesterton. So probably maybe read both of those, you know, uh, if you're going to read one, maybe read the other. <clears throat> All righty. Well, um, Levi, do you have any other questions for uh, for Dr. Kempel? Yeah. Um, so I guess my my one other question would be, um, what, what kinds of things do you plan on offering? Do you, do you, are you planning on expanding continuum philosophical insights to other types of um, educational events or uh, do you have any books planned for the future? Or, I mean, I know you're promoting the one and we're going to put a link to, to your book right now, but uh, that you have out right now, but um, is there, are there other, what, what other things are coming on the horizon for you? Uh, well, I definitely do have a plan to publish more, um, probably in line with maybe some of the courses and seminars that I'll offer. Um, definitely, I have one planned already on, on metaphysics. Um, you know, I've got um, a lot of old notes from classes and things and uh, writings that I've done that are sort of you know, pulled together and uh, expand on and offer that as, as a book on metaphysics. I'll probably intend some point I'll offer one which gets into philosophical psychology uh, a bit deeper, maybe something on, on semiotics, maybe something on phenomenology. You know, I got, I, I have no shortage of, of plans for things to write. Um, 
but uh, as far as other events, you know, um, uh, definitely, you know, I intend to, to make a career out of this if I really can. Um, so to do in-person seminars, um, if possible, uh, maybe give talks if people are willing to have me. Um, and, you know, uh, it may not always be just me. Um, I know there are other academics, other philosophers who have been struggling with the job market, um, who have great talent and great philosophical insight. And so if I can, you know, get this off the ground, I'd be very happy to bring other people in. Um, you know, I, I only have so much expertise uh, as, as a philosopher. I think I, I know a good amount of things about a good amount of topics, but there are other people who know a lot more about a lot more. So uh, there's no reason not to bring them in as well. Um, so I, I think it's, it's starting to pick up some steam here. And uh, yeah, uh, things are looking up. That's good. Well, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate Isaac uh, jumping on to, uh, to ask lots of great questions. And uh, thank you, Dr. Kempel, for joining us. All right, well, thank you, guys. Um, it was a pleasure. And uh, I look forward to seeing this out there. Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.